0: So, 1 Peter 3, starting from verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil, And their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience toward god it saves you by the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the at god's right hand with angels authorities and powers in submission to him
1: hey chaplain how are we to see if we haven't met. My name's James, one of the pastors here. Uh, This is a a big, uh, chunky chapter to be dealing with, and so um, lots of good stuff in here for us. So I'd love for you to pray with me now as we come before God's Word. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in all our sorrow, in all our victory, in all our riches, in all our comfort. Jesus is better, so we ask now, as we sit under your word, in the power of your spirit, you would make our hearts believe that. we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well continuing in one Peter, great to have your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, this is a picture of David Livingston. Uh, he lived uh, as a missionary, went um, to Africa in the 1800s and lived an extraordinary life. His passion was to see the brutal slave trade ended and to share the good news of Jesus with men, women and children. He left the comfort and security of England to go and live in a mud hut for 30 years. He lived an extraordinary life. In around 1857, he was returning to England for a visit and he spoke to students at Cambridge University. And he's speaking about how people often focused on the sacrifices he'd made to be a missionary. And he said this about the sacrifices, that they are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Did you see that? I never made a sacrifice. Who talks like that? Who lives like that? It's extraordinary, isn't it? David Livingston cherished and revered Jesus. And so he spoke openly of the hope that he had in Jesus. He lived an extraordinary life. So I wonder tonight, how does that make you feel? Does it inspire you? Does it challenge you? Does it unsettle you? The reason I ask is because what God puts before us in 1 Peter 3 tonight is this promise that if you... Cherish, if you adore Jesus in your heart, you will live an extraordinary life. For some of us, it will be like David Livingston or our friends in Asia. You'll leave the hills and you'll leave Sydney and go to serve Jesus in difficult places. For some of us, our extraordinary life will be here in the hills in Sydney. And, but whatever you do, wherever you go, God's promise is that if you cherish Jesus, if you adore Jesus, you will live an extraordinary life because you have an opportunity to share something of the grace and beauty of Jesus with people, that they would then glorify God and enjoy him. And that is special, isn't it? That's extraordinary. That's inspiring. But it's not easy. It's not easy because 1 Peter reminds us that we are exiles and outsiders in this world. Now, that's really helpful for us. I love how Peter is so honest uh, and realistic about life. We've captured that in our series, Exile. This reminder that God's people are exiles, they're strangers, they're foreigners, they're outsiders in this world. And what that means is that we need to keep remembering that all this, our, our lives, our careers, our homes, our hobbies, this church building, our study, that it's not our real home. Our real home is God's eternal kingdom. But that can make life challenging and difficult for us. See, in the first century, when uh, Peter was writing this letter to these churches scattered throughout what is now modern Turkey, they hadn't yet experienced that statewide government-inspired violent persecution. That was about to come. That was just around the corner for them. But at this point, Christians were seen just as an annoyance and irritation in their culture because they lived differently to their neighbours. They refused to worship the Roman gods. They had different values. A lot like Sydney today, isn't it? Stephen McAlpine uh, writes in his blog uh, about one example of what it's like to be a Christian in a corporate workplace in today's day. He, He says that the Christian in those corporate workplaces know that no matter how nicely they smile on wear it purple day, the HR department, And indeed, a few of their colleagues will consider them the moral equivalent of a smiling racist. It's a bit like the first century. Christians are seen as an irritation and annoyance, but there is very little aggressive persecution. And verse 13 speaks to that. If you look there with me, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? In the normal course of life, if you will live a good, decent life, you try to be kind to people and be a good worker, be a good student, then no one's going to give you a hard time. No one's out to get you. But, verse 14, even if you should suffer for doing what is right, for being a Christian, then you are blessed. See, there will be times, even when you live a really good life, you're kind and decent to people, you will still be excluded and ridiculed and mocked for being a Christian. I love how honest and realistic Peter is about life. It's not easy being an outsider and an exile. And there is a kind of normal instinctive natural way to respond to that as a a human being one of the ways is that we can we can kind of give into what verse 14 talks about give into fear and and sort of withdraw from our culture from people around us so don't tell anyone you're a christian in the workplace on campus in your school and when jesus comes up when people talk about spiritual things and it kind of gets as a debate and jesus is mocked the church is mocked don't say anything just hide away circle the wagons And stockpile your doomsday bunker, ready for the apocalypse. That's what you can do. You can withdraw. Or the other alternative is you can retaliate. You can bite back. You can study and sharpen up your arguments. So when people kind of make fun of Christians, you can weigh in and you can humiliate them and tear them down and put them in their place. See, there's normal ways to react. You can withdraw or retaliate. But here, in 1 Peter, God puts something far better before us have a look at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34 and says this is actually the best way to live and and I think verse 12 is saying that God smiles upon us when we live like that. And then down to verse 17 for it is better for his gods will to suffer for doing good than for evil. See, there's a normal, instinctive way to respond when you're treated like an exile, an outsider. You can withdraw or retaliate. But God says there's a better way to live. There's a way full of blessing. There's a way to live an extraordinary life. So how do we do that? Well, it means you revere your extraordinary King and Saviour. Have a look at verse 17 with me. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why would that be the case? Verse 18, For or because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus was the victim of the most unjust suffering the world has ever seen. Think about it. The perfect son of God. He left the glory and beauty of his father's side and he humbled himself. He was born into our world into weakness and poverty and he came full of grace and truth. So he healed the sick. He spoke out against injustice. He drove back evil. He taught the truth. And he kept doing that throughout his life in the face of exhaustion and temptation and opposition. And in the face of all that, he still did it with compassion and gentleness and patience. Chaplain. Jesus lived an extraordinary life, didn't he? Amen? And then you know what happened. He was betrayed by one of his disciples, abandoned by the rest of them. The religious leaders dragged him into an illegal court and framed him with lies so that they could have him beaten, mocked, spat upon and ridiculed. And then they led him outside the city and they strung him up on a cross to suffer one of the most painful and humiliating deaths that humankind could dream up. And all through that, Jesus did not retaliate. He didn't offer any threats. Do you remember how he spoke about his killers? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus lived an extraordinary life, experienced the most unjust suffering we've ever seen, the perfect son of God treated like a common criminal. So where do we go with that? Do we say, well, Jesus suffered like you can't believe, so just put up with your suffering. A friend of mine was kind of told that. He grew up in a very legalistic church where he always felt like Jesus' death was this weight, this burden in his life that dragged him down. But that's not what verse 18 is saying. Jesus didn't come and suffer just to be an inspiring example to everyone who suffers. No, the point of verse 18 is at the end of that first sentence. Have a look and call it out when you see it. The end of that first sentence of verse 18. What was the purpose of Jesus coming and suffering and dying? Bring you to God. Yeah. Let's say that together. To bring you to God. Jesus came to bring you to God. Underline that in your Bible, if it's your Bible, not one you borrowed from the church. Remember that. Don't forget that. Thank God for that. Celebrate that. Jesus went through unjust suffering not to make a point not to build his reputation, not for his own sake, not to be a burden to you, no, to bring you to God. He died for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you into relationship with God. Isn't Jesus extraordinary? So revere him, celebrate him, worship him, adore him, cherish him, follow him, cling to him. Revere your extraordinary King and Saviour. And then the story continues because verse 18 goes on, says that he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then, as we flick over into verse 19, come some of the most tricky verses in the New Testament. If you looked at them at Community Group or DC or in your own Bible reading this week, you would have been scratching your heads. What on earth is that about Noah and the spirits in prison and all that sort of stuff? And you're not alone. There's a lot of ink being spilt trying to work out and debates working out what this, these verses mean. And I'm going to share with you tonight what I think they mean. Now, you might have a different view. And if that's you, that's, that's totally fine. God bless you and the peace of God be upon you. <laughs> I love how our Bibles acknowledge that this is a tricky verse. Because if you look down, most of you should have a footnote in your Bibles, which is another kind of translation of verse 19. And if you see there, it says, verse the footnote is, "...in which also." Now, what that means is that we could read verse 19, verse 18, 19, slightly differently. Now, stay with me. It would read something like this. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the realm of the Spirit. That's God's eternal kingdom. And then the the new bit with the footnote, in which, in the realm of the Spirit, in the realm of God's eternal kingdom, he also preached. Now, the difference with that, what's in the main part of our Bibles would mean that verse 19 is not talking about something Jesus did after his resurrection but something Jesus did at a different time and I think that time is in the days of Noah when the world as you read in Genesis 6 was full of people disobeying God and Jesus came in the power of his spirit and he preached through Noah and he preached a warning of judgment coming and called for repentance And Noah and his family trusted God and they were saved. But as you read in Genesis, countless people didn't. They rejected God. They perished in the flood. And now they're locked up in judgment, the spirits in prison that the verses talk about. I think there's another thing in 1 Peter that kind of help us see that. If you come back with me into chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. I want to hear those pages flicking as we stay together. That's really helpful. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances, look at this, to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. See that Christ preached through the Old Testament prophets looking forward to the Messiah. So we've got two cases in 1 Peter of Jesus doing that. He preached through Noah in chapter 3 and he preached through the prophets in chapter 1. Now, I know that's all quite complicated. And if you want to ask me questions afterwards, I'd love to chat more. But here's the really important question. Why did God put this in his word? Because we're thinking, if I was writing this, I would have put a little different. I think God puts it here to help us grasp the majesty and power of Jesus. To people feeling isolated and alone and outsiders and under pressure and even persecution. God says, your Saviour Jesus is in so much control of history and reality that He preached through Noah and He preached through the Old Testament prophets and He came and He died and He rose and He rules supreme. Verse 22 says that He has gone into heaven as at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to Him. So God says, don't worry about the future. Like Noah, went into the ark and was saved. So trust Jesus and you will be saved. Your saviour Jesus is supreme. So revere him and cherish him and adore him. And if you do, verse 15 says you will live an extraordinary life because you will share your extraordinary hope. This is the kind of take home for us. So stay with me. Come to verse 14. But even if you should suffer what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8. We looked at that part of Isaiah in term 1. Remember, that was a time when the people of Judah were so afraid of the Syrian empire that they tried to protect themselves with alliances with other nations and, and armies, and they stopped trusting God. Their fear destroyed their faith. But Peter here says, you don't need to do that. Because you know that Jesus is supreme. He died, He rules, and He reigns. And when you grasp that, when you hold on to that, when you revere Jesus, then you will always be ready to give an answer for the hope you have. So let me ask you has anyone asked you to do that lately? Has anyone come to you and said, Can you give me the reason for the hope you have? Because what would cause someone to come to you and do that? What would cause someone to say, hey, can you tell me the reason for the hope you have? What would stir that in them? Well, it'd be that they see you living differently, wouldn't it? They would see that you hope differently. Because this is where most people in our culture get their hope and their happiness from, from success from getting the approval and praise of other people. And so when that's taken from them, when that's challenged, they bite back, they resent that. But God says, you don't need to be like that. Your hope is in Jesus so you can live differently. And so it's the way you respond to being criticised. You don't bite back. The way you use your money, the way you aren't seduced by success into thinking that means you're better than other people. The way you do, verse 9, you don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. The way you're gentle and gracious with people. So I want you to imagine this. Someone in your workplace or your family or on on campus or in your school is watching you. And they see you living differently. They see you hoping differently. And they come to you and they say, "What, what do you know That I don't know, because you're you're different. You you seem to hope differently to me. Now, at this point, we kind of get can get a little bit overwhelmed, and so we just need to breathe for a moment. Just it's okay, (laughs) because we read, "Always be prepared" in verse fifteen, and we think, "Oh dear, always be prepared." That means I've got to study. I need a book like this thick of all the proofs for God and the resurrection. I've got to learn all that, but that's not what the Bible says. I love how gentle God is with us. He never says anything in his word that crushes us with expectations and rules, but only brings us joy and for our good. Because it says, give the reason for the hope you have. And you can all do that. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can do that. I I could get you up on stage right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to do it. It's okay, don't get scared. And I could ask you a few questions and we could draw out the reason for the hope you have in Jesus. You know why I could do that? Because it's your story. You are a Christian because Jesus has given you reason to hope. And so you could say something like this. You know, I know that Jesus died for me and he rose. And so now I have forgiveness and, and a promise of eternal life. That's the reason for your hope. Or you could go to 1 Peter 1, you could say, I read there and have the promise that God, because of his great mercy, has given me new birth into a living hope so that I have this inheritance in heaven that's kept for me forever. That's your story. That's your reason for hope. Now, if you share that with your friend who'd been asking you, they may not agree with you. They may not quite understand it, but it's still the right answer. It's still your story, your reason for hope. 1 Peter is full of hope. This book, the Bible, is bursting with hope. God has given us so many reasons to hope in our lives. Amen? So then you give that answer to your friend and then they might say, so how do you know that's actually true? Like it's not a fairy story. Then you need an answer for that. And you might say something like this. Yeah, I was reading the Gospels and... I read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and I got to know Jesus, his grace and his power and his teaching and his compassion. And the Jesus I met in the Gospels won my confidence, my trust, my hope. I just can't walk away from the Jesus I meet in the Gospels. You could say something like that. That's your story. That's your reason for hope. I remember when I was 22, I was working in the city and consulting, and I was having lunch with an old school friend, uh, Tony. And um, let's just say, put it kind of nicely, Tony enjoyed the party scene. You can read between the lines what that meant in his life. Uh, and we're sitting at lunch one time, and he said to me, Do you ever feel guilty for the things you've done in your life? And I said to him, No, I don't. And he looked shocked. He said, Don't get me wrong, I am guilty. I have done some silly things, some terrible things, but I know that Jesus died for me and he's paid for my sin, so I don't need to carry guilt. Now, I was 22. I didn't have all the answers. I'm 47. I've been to Bible college and I still don't have all the answers. But I can talk about the hope that I have in Jesus. And so can you. You can talk about your story. Verse 15 and 16 tells us to do that with gentleness and respect which basically means, if you want kind of the Australian translation, is don't be a jerk. <laughs> don't be smug and arrogant as you do that. Be gentle and respectful. And so there's a, a great story of a missionary doctor in a Muslim country in North Africa. Uh, he'd run a, a, a clinic where anyone from the community could come in and just get medical help that they needed. And one day, he's, he's, this lady's come in and she's got this big gash in her arm. And she's got a, a wound and so on. And As he's cleaning it out, he's explaining to her why he has to clean it very thoroughly to make sure there's no dirt, there's no germs in the wound before he binds it up. And then she says to him, You know, it's not just my arm. I wish I had a clean heart, too. Wow. So what do you say? Well, (laughs) that's because you're a Muslim. You don't have any sense of grace and forgiveness. That's not gentleness and respect. No, this is what he said. I know exactly what you mean. I had such a dirty heart myself. But then I met someone who took it all away. Would you like me to tell you about him? With gentleness and respect, give the reason for the hope you have in Jesus. And the purpose of all that is chapter 2 verse 12, so that people would glorify God with us. So here's the promise of God, chaplain. If you revere Jesus in your heart, you cherish Him and adore Him and love Him, you have the reason for the hope that you have. And you'll be able to share that with others. You'll live an extraordinary life because you'll be able to speak that into so many people's lives and they will glorify God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we want to acknowledge this evening that we have sung, we have prayed and we've heard in your word that in all our sorrows, in all our victories, in all our riches, in all our comfort, Jesus is always better. And so I want to ask tonight that in the power of your spirit, you would help us to believe that, that we would revere and adore and cherish Jesus in our hearts so that then we would have the reason for the hope that we have in him. We've got to share that with our friends our neighbours, our workmates, that they would glorify you, for you are worthy of all that praise and glory. And we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And God's people said, Amen.